Good evening again. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Genesis 22, Genesis chapter 22. And if you don't have one, we've got some under the chairs and you can follow along with us uh, with the black Bible you'll see nearby. We'll be on page 16 in that black Bible, um, Genesis 22. We're continuing, really finishing our series, Father Abraham. In this series, we've been looking at the faith of Abraham And the New Testament tells us that Abraham is the father, really, of all who believe, because he is someone who had to learn to trust God in difficult circumstances, much as we have to learn to depend on and trust God. Tonight, chapter 22 is kind of the end of the Abraham story. There's a little bit more detail that goes on in Genesis, but this is kind of the big climax of his faith, and we're calling it God Provides. Um, This is a really tough story. This is probably, I don't want to overstate things, but this is probably the hardest story in the Bible. Uh, in the sense of it's a story that we, as moderns, naturally recoil from. And I don't even want to state that too much. It's not just we as moderns. We especially as moderns recoil from the story. But ancient people would have recoiled from the story too. And so I'm going to read the story. And I just want to give you permission to recoil, right? I want to give you permission to go, man, this is a hard story. So um, we're going to just face that up front and say, this is a tough story. And it's written to be a tough story. It's not like you know, ancient people read this and thought, oh, this is just fine. I mean, it was, it was a hard story for ancient people. It's a hard story for us today. Um, so let me read chapter 22. I'll read kind of the beginning part of the story, uh, and then we'll unfold the details as we move on. Starting in verse 1, it says, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. Let me pray, and uh, we'll ask for God's help with this tough story. God, we pray for your help. We ask for your grace. We ask for your Holy Spirit to move so that we would uh, hear and receive what you want us to hear and understand. Uh, We see that you are kind. You've shown us that in Jesus. Uh, We pray now for understanding that would open our minds to see what's going on in a very tough story, in a very tough circumstance. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I said, this is, this is a hard story. I mean, he's asking him to sacrifice his son, um, and by all modern standards of morality, morality, and even by ancient standards of morality, we would say that's, that's not appropriate. You know, that's not okay for God to ask that. So what do we do with this? Um, one thing I think that would help to bridge the... the uh, context gap a little bit is in the ancient world, child sacrifice was very common. So in the ancient world, child sacrifice was very common. That was the context. Uh, many religions, uh, the gods were what we might call bloodthirsty. 
uh, and there was common child sacrifice practices that went on. Um, you know, in the modern world, child sacrifice is pretty common as well, too. I mean, we, we kind of dress it up. We don't usually go through strange, you know, religious ceremonies when we sacrifice children, but uh, we sacrifice children all the time emotionally, spiritually, you know, leave kids behind as emotional orphans, as spiritual orphans. There's also just the physical sacrifice of children in the abortion industry. So still today, we sacrifice children quite a bit. We just think of ourselves as kind of modern people that are too smart for these ancient religions, so we don't dress it up with ancient religions. Yet we still do the same thing. So ancient people and modern people, we sacrifice children. Yet at the same time, we recoil and say, this, this is not appropriate, this is not okay. Um, so one of the big questions with this story is, is that what God is asking? Is God asking for Abraham to do the same thing that other peoples and other cultures were doing? Um, I think the quick answer is no, but we want to kind of take our time and let the story unfold. We want to let the story sink in and kind of let's try to kind of discover it in, in real time. So the first thing that we see as we unfold the story is in verse 1, we're told that this is a test, that God is testing Abraham. Look again at verse 1. It, it says it this way. In verse 1, it says, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, here I am. So the story begins to unfold from, from that beginning. God is testing Abraham. Um, and we need to reckon with that first because most of us, when we think of a test, uh, I shouldn't say most of us, but I think a lot of us, when we think of a test, we think of a teacher that's out to get us, right? Do you think of that? Um, this teacher that's got it in for me. Um, but in reality, that's not really what a test means. We also struggle if we're familiar with the Bible. If you're familiar with the New Testament, if you've read much of it, you would know in James where it says God doesn't test us or tempt us toward evil, uh, that we shouldn't see God in that light. And so when we look at what God is doing here and when we look at what God says in James, what we come to understand is that God doesn't test us for the purpose of leading us into temptation or evil or sin. But God can test us in the sense of giving us an opportunity to succeed, giving us opportunities to live out what we believe. And that's how I would understand this here. He's not testing him because he wants Abraham to fail. He's giving Abraham an opportunity to succeed. One of the teachers at my kid's school actually calls tests opportunities. I don't know if you've ever heard that before. They don't, they're not tests, they're opportunities. And so I, again, I think this is God setting Abraham up to succeed. He's taught Abraham over many, many years that Abraham can trust him. He said, I'm, I'm here for you. I've made these promises for you. I'm going to be there for you. He's telling Abraham this again and again, and now Abraham is, is really beginning to trust him. I don't know if you've ever had those moments in your life where you kind of cross over from great doubt and angst with God to like moments of clarity. You're like, I know, I know he's good. I know, I know, deep down, I know I can trust him. And I think that's what's taking place in Abraham's life here in the midst of, again, crazy circumstances. So here, here's this test. He says, Abraham, Abraham says, here, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. And commentators like to point out that this is written in kind of a painstaking way, right? It's not just like, take your son and go sacrifice him. It's take your son your only son, the son that you love. His name is Isaac. And it's like painstaking, slow detail. A lot of commentators point out that the way the first eight verses go is it's very plodding and slow and torturous. 
and then when we get to the scene, the next scene, it's like everything speeds up and it's really fast and there's tension, right? Kind of like in a movie how, you know, there's different camera shots to kind of get you to have this mood in one scene and then another mood in another scene. This scene, it's, it's slow and torturous. And we're going, man, what is happening? It, we're supposed to be kind of aching and wondering and hurting through the story because it is, it is a hard thing that he's being asked. So he says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. This is really interesting. He's told to take his son, sacrifice him in the land of Moriah. Do you know the other place that Moriah shows up in the Bible? It's in Chronicles, and David has a vision of the Lord in Moriah. And so David sets up an altar there where he had seen the Lord in Moriah. And later on, his son Solomon decides to build a temple there. And so this becomes the place where regular sacrifices are made to God. We know it as Mount Zion or Jerusalem, this area, this place, this mountain of the Lord, where God's asking Abraham to make this sacrifice, this foundational sacrifice that really is foreshadowing and leading us to see all the other sacrifices of the Bible, an entire system of sacrifices that are to come. So he's saying, go to the land of Moriah, offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So again, the the slow language, Abraham then rose early in the morning, he saddled his donkey, he took two of his young men with him, and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering, and arose, and went to the place which God had told him. And then it goes on in verse 4 and says, on the third day, and yes, I think that's an important literary echo, there are other important things that happen in the New Testament after three days, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. So what is Abraham saying to his servants, to the young men that are with him? He's saying, we're coming back. Me and the boy, we are going to go worship. And me and the boy, we are going to come back. And so he's making it very clear. And again, boy can be translated young man. You should see that in your translation notes at the bottom. He's saying that he believes that he and Isaac are going to go and that he and Isaac are going to come back. Hebrews tells us that Abraham actually believed that God was going to raise Isaac from the dead. That God really was asking this crazy thing of him, but that God was going to fix it just through resurrection. That he would raise him from the dead. It says this in Hebrews chapter 11. So Abraham doesn't really know the details of how God is going to keep his promises to bless the world through this miracle child Isaac, but he knows God will because he's been shown again and again that he can trust God and that God will do what he says he will do. So even when God asks this crazy thing of him, he has trust that God will make it work through miraculous resurrection if necessary. So we hear this, see this first clue that Abraham doesn't believe that he's been being invited to murder, right? He believes that he's being invited to take part in some supernatural amazing thing that God is going to do that probably will never be done again or never replicated again, but he sees it as amazing and supernatural. We have other clues as well. I would say just kind of here before we move on, if you hear a voice telling you to sacrifice your child, say no, okay? I'd say this is a unique revelation. Abraham was a prophet, and we now have the complete words of God, and God makes it very clear that's not what we're supposed to do. So if you have any questions, I'd love to talk to you more. If you have these voices, I'll I'll talk to you about it. But um, 
but I would say that's clearly not the norm. And so again, we recoil because we're like, what if God asked me to do this? He's not, okay? So I just want to put that to rest for you so you're not worrying. But let me give you more of the clues of why, why I'm confident of that. Let's continue to unfold the story. So he tells the servants, we're both coming back. And then it says, uh, verse 8, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And so again, commentators like to see these analogies. This is like Jesus having the wood of the cross, the instrument of his death being laid on his back, and the, the three days, and all these kind of little echoes that are supposed to remind us of this other story. goes on, says, he had the fire and the knife, so they went, both of them, together. It's an important phrase that appears three times in the story. They are together. Verse 7, Isaac said to his father Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. The story is about God's provision. The big idea of the story is about God's provision. Abraham has absolute confidence that God will provide. The author of Hebrews says he believed uh, the specifics of how God would provide was through resurrection, and that didn't end up being how God did it, although the author of Hebrews says, but figuratively, that is what happened. Figuratively, he did get his son resurrected back to him. But Abraham doesn't know exactly how God's going to provide, but he trusts that God will provide. Later on in the next segment, we'll see that he does, and Abraham names this place God will provide. But what's interesting is this last little phrase, so they went, both of them together. And we just read that a couple of verses earlier. We're going to read that again later on after the, the big crisis takes place three times in the story. We see they go together. They are together. The Hebrew word is when you have two or three or four different things acting as one. It's a basic idea of oneness. When I think about oneness, I think of uh, the wedding ceremonies that I officiate as a minister. I get to do a lot of wedding ceremonies, and one of the things we talk about in a wedding is oneness. A wedding is basically two different people who like different things, who look different, coming together and being one, which, as you know, if you've tried it, is a very difficult thing to do, right? You've got two sinners coming together. I mean, some of you, maybe it's just one of your spouses is a sinner and the other one's good, but for most of us, it's two sinners coming together, right? It's two sinners coming together, and that's hard for two sinners to love, and be generous, and be one with each other. I I grabbed a picture here just to kind of give you an image of that. We've got a couple, you know, the kind of romantic scene, a nice uh, stock photo here of a couple being one. We have this phrase three times again and again. It's not a romantic scenario here. It's a father-son scenario, but we still have the same idea. We have two different people that might have different priorities that might want to go in different directions that are going together, that are acting as one. And I think one of the problems we have with this story, one of the problems we have with the idea of Abraham sacrificing Isaac is we think about it as this cute little kid from our children's story Bible, little baby Isaac, right? And then Abraham kind of gruffly sacrificing this little kid. And and that, for the most part, is we understand that's not really how it worked. Um, For one thing, we see him carrying the wood, and so people would say, well, he had to be a pretty big dude, right? Like he had to be a teenager, to be strong enough to carry the wood. The verse is translated boy, but it can also be translated as young man. And most of the Hebrew rabbis believe he's actually a man-man, not just a teenage young man, but a man-man. He's in his 30s because the very next story, he's 37. 
because you can kind of do the math. It gives you another age marker with uh, the death of his mother in the next story. So we have either he's a young man or a man-man, still, still young. I like to think 37 is young now that I'm 43. Um, but he's, he's some kind of strong man, though, right? He's either a strong teenager, my teenage son can beat me up, or he's a strong grown man. And they're going together. We're told they're together. We're told they're acting as one. They're on the same page. They're doing the same thing. They're walking in the same direction. They're not going different directions. They're going the same direction. I think that's a really important part of the story. And again, all, all the Hebrew rabbis see it this way. They all agree that Isaac was on the same page with Abraham. I don't know if you've heard these stories. If, if you've gone to churches over the years, I've, I've heard different variations of this of like, some father who's operating a bridge and his son's playing on it and the ship has to come through uh, and then he has to decide to kill his son to save the people on the ship. Have you ever heard that story before? There's like variations of that, right? There's the, the father sacrificing the son story, right? It's like a motif and it appears again and again. And of course, uh, there's, there's profound meaning there and there's depth there, but I don't know about you, but I've kind of been like, but like, no, that's, that's not how it went down with God the Heavenly Father and Jesus, it wasn't Jesus just kind of minding his own business and God's like, well, sorry, I'm going to zap you to save humanity. Jesus was in agreement with his heavenly Father. They were one. Our understanding of the Trinity is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are one. One God. Three persons, but one God. They're on the same page. They love each other equally. They serve each other. They go in the same direction. And so our understanding theologically of what this points to, right? If, if this is pointing to something bigger in God the Father and God the Son, what we see there is God the Son willingly going together with God the Father to save us. It wasn't an accident. He did it on purpose. And, and I think that's an important piece for us to understand the story. One more piece. Well, a few more pieces. Um, there's a verse uh, in Jeremiah you can write these down to look them up later. I'm not going to like stop and flip over to these. But Jeremiah 19.5 and then Exodus 13.12. In Jeremiah 19.5, God through the prophets is condemning his people because they're taking part in child sacrifice. This child sacrifice that all the other nations are taking part in. And he's saying, I never told you to do that. It never even entered my mind. I mean, that's pretty strong language if that is exactly what God is doing to Abraham, right? So I would argue that means it's not exactly what Abraham is being asked to do. That this is man sacrifice, it's willing sacrifice, his son is in agreement. There's a whole different sort of thing taking place here. Because God is completely repulsed by this child sacrifice that was going on in the nations. So God's entering into, yeah, this is the kind of thing you see, and it's not how we're going to do things. It's not how we're going to operate. There's also this concept we see in the Old Testament in Exodus uh, 13, the other verse I shared with you, where it says, uh, every firstborn belongs to God. Every firstborn male belongs to God. And from the very beginning of the law, those firstborn are not to be sacrificed to God, but they do belong to God. And because they belong to God, there should be an animal that's sacrificed in their place to redeem them. And so what we have is this system this understanding in the ancient world that the firstborn carries the weight of his tribe, that he carries a corporate responsibility for his people, uh, that there is a judicial rightness to the firstborn stepping up and saying, I will take the rewards, but I will also take the punishment for my people. 
And we see that very clearly throughout the Old Testament on into the New Testament, that there's always this understanding of a tribal head who pays for his family. And every firstborn, that's his role. Every firstborn, he's the one that has to pay what is due. The way this is translated in the New Testament is we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then we're told that the wages of sin is death. And so, you know, in in pop culture, we have these pictures of like the grim reaper, right? We have all these kind of different images of, of death coming and knocking on your door. It's a pretty universal concept, depending on your religion, you know, it's flavored or colored in different ways. But there's this universal understanding that that we all deserve death, that we all deserve death. And God establishes this system of law in the Old Testament where he says the firstborn is the one that steps up and pays the price for his tribe and for his people. But we're not going to be that kind of child sacrifice cult that you see all around you. We're going to redeem the firstborn with an animal sacrifice. And all that is being established in, in the story. All that is beginning to take place here in this story. So God is testing Abraham to see, Abraham, do you trust me? Do you know? Do you know, really know, deep down know that I will provide and it's going to be okay? And I'm going to keep my promises. And I would say yes. I don't think God is asking Abraham to do something immoral. Abraham is acting as the federal head of his tribe, and he's being called up to ask the chief, the next chief, the prince, to pay the debt for his tribe as well. I think it's better probably not to think about it as a father and a son in our kind of modern family context, but to think of it more in judicial terms. One tribal chief uh, being called up to execute justice with the upcoming tribal chief. And again, that doesn't make it necessarily any easier for us as modern people because, you know, we think we're so much more sophisticated than these tribal chieftains. But we can see that it's something different than just the -the run-of-the-mill child sacrifice of the ancient world. There's a real justice involved, and Abraham's operating judicially in this picture. So the story continues, and we see God redeems. God redeems in verses 9 through 14. So Abraham's just told Isaac, I believe God will provide. I believe God will provide the lamb. God will provide his own lamb. Verse 9, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Uh, In the Hebrew, this comes out much more clearly. It's the the and, 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 and phrase with the verb. So it's and verb, and verb, and verb. And so this is the, the changing camera shot, so to speak, right? So the earlier story was this kind of slow Abraham saddled his donkey, and he cut the wood, and they started traveling, and three days later they got there, and now the action speeds up, right? Now it's fast forward, and he cuts the wood, and he places the wood, and he lays out his son, and he binds his son, and it's just this kind of quick staccato, um, it's called polysyndetonous repetition of terms, right? And, 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 and. One of the things that we see in the text as well is it says he laid him on the altar. This is another reason I think on our first reading or in our children's story Bibles, we, we think of it as like this little baby Isaac and he lays him, you know, lays this little baby on the altar. Um, but the word laid is just, it's really place, right? He's, he's setting him. Um, again, Hebrew rabbis actually call the story the akedah, which is the Hebrew word for binding. It's called the binding story. And the Hebrew rabbi's understanding is that 
Isaac said, Father, bind me so that I don't jerk out of the way when the knife comes down, right? Because he's the willing sacrifice. So this story is called uh, The Binding by the Hebrew Rabbis. He's placing him on the altar. It says in verse 10 that Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now, I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now, if God knows all things, did he really need to go through all this, right? Um, I think part of the reason we would ask that is because we think of the word know and knowledge in a different way than it's used in the Hebrew. We tend to think of knowledge as like facts that we collect and spit out on a test that don't necessarily mean anything in our real life. Uh, But in Hebrew, knowledge is is intimacy. Knowledge is being intimately acquainted with something. As a matter of fact, knowledge is used for the love between a man and a woman that produces children, right? So it's this intimacy, this closeness, and it means much more than just facts. And so the way to say this would be now God or the angel of the Lord at least is saying, now we're experiencing your trust. Now we're living out this faith that you have. Now we're testing you, giving you the opportunity to show that you really know that God will provide, that you are willing to trust him even in the most difficult circumstances. So he says, now I know that you trust the Lord. He goes on and says, you've not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. Now, this might be going just a little too far, but I I read it by a really smart rabbi, so I want to pass this on. Um, Some say, no, this wasn't a rabbi, this was a Christian scholar. He said, uh, it's like the ram was caught in a crown of thorns. I thought, hey, that's a cool, that's a cool, interesting image. Regardless of whether you see the crown of thorns image or not, you definitely see the, the substitutionary redeemer image. Jesus throughout the New Testament says, he's the lamb of God. It's come to take away the sins of the world. So Abraham looks over, and here's this lamb, this ram, the sheep, caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went, and he took the ram, and he offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Instead of his son. So we have this replacement. We have this substitute, and we use the word redeem. We don't use the word redeem in our everyday language very often. It's kind of become now a theological word. It's a word that used to be used commonly in our culture, I, I grabbed a picture here um, several years ago. This is where I think the word was uh, used the most, is redeeming stamps. And so these are SNH green stamps. How many of you remember SNH green stamps? Okay, if you, I'm dating people here. Yeah, this is fun. Uh, I love to do this where I just kind of divide the congregation. Those of you older than me, those of you that are younger than me, uh, SNH green stamps were these kind of like, like little coupons you'd collect when you go to the grocery store. You'd buy stuff. And if you bought enough stuff, they'd give you these coupons. You could put them in a book, and then you could use them and redeem them for items, right? So you could buy stuff back with them. It's, it's an exchange. It's a kind of barter, a kind of money system, kind of like today. The version of that today is you go to the sandwich shop, you get a punch in your card, right? And you go to the sandwich cop, shop, buy another sandwich, get another punch. And after 57 sandwiches, you get a free sandwich, right? You can redeem the card, yeah. So... So this concept of redeeming is is this payment concept, right? It's this substitution. It's taking one thing and and substituting it for another, paying for another, redeeming. The the ram redeems the boy. It's a substitution. Again, in Exodus, it says, The firstborn belongs to the Lord, 
Because the firstborn belongs to the Lord, you can't just have a firstborn and everything's cool. You've got to have the firstborn and then go exchange a lamb, a ram, a goat, some sort of sacrifice to redeem the firstborn, to buy back that firstborn. And so, of course, this is the picture that's supposed to point us to Jesus. It's supposed to point us to that picture of how Jesus redeems us. All, of, all this literary imagery points it to, to that. Um, there's imagery that's supposed to make us associate Isaac with Jesus, right? And as I said, that's why the oneness is really important. It's not Isaac as an unwilling sacrifice, but it's this idea of Isaac as a willing sacrifice. But even better than Isaac is we're more like Isaac who steps off the altar and the substitute takes our place, which we would say is Jesus. So the Christian story is that Jesus, when he hung on the cross, all of God's wrath was poured out on him, that he absorbed the sins of the world. And that his righteousness is given to us by faith. So there's this redemption, this exchange, this buying back that takes place. Where in God's eyes, he looks at us through Jesus and he sees us as delightful and as beautiful and as trusting and as loving as Jesus himself. So that that through Christ, God is pleased with you. God delights in you. And that's what our faith means. And that's what this, again, this story is pointing to. It happens on Mount Moriah. And then the temple was bo- uh, built on Mount Moriah, and all these sacrifices took place, pointing out the need for redemption, for sacrifice, for a ram, for something to take our place, to take away the sin that became a barrier between us and God. And so that when Jesus comes, he's fulfilling all these things that the sacrificial system as flannel graph just pointed to and foreshadowed. It was hints, it was cartoons, and then when Jesus comes, he's the real thing. He's the reality. As Hebrews says, he's the substance, and the sacrificial system were, were shadows, were, were vapors, were images. So we have now this beautiful picture of God actually providing. And so it goes on, and it says, um, the ram was provided, he took his place, he was offered as a burnt offering instead of his son. Verse 14, so Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And so the author of Genesis here is setting up the people of God saying, yeah, that's the place where God will provide for you. That's the place where you will begin to form yourself with habits of worship where you come in and say, I need God to provide for me. I can't do this on my own. I need a God who will step in and make provision." Because I can't provide for myself, I need a God who will provide for me. And as God does this, it changes Abraham, it changes Isaac, it changes us as we see him as the God who provides and the God who redeems, who gives us this substitute, the sacrifice. So what's really cool now here is that God takes this and moves this into a new phase in Abraham's life. And we see now that God is going to multiply what's happened here. So this is this foundation story that multiplies, right? Um, We live today as children of Abraham because we have faith just like Abraham had faith. Uh, The entire sacrificial system is built off of this story of God meeting this this, uh, broken world where there's child sacrifice and selfishness, and he's meeting that world head on, and he's uh, subverting the system of this world, saying it's not how it's going to work. I'm going to make the payment. You're not going to make payments to appease an angry God, but God, who is rightly and justly angry, will appease himself at his own cost. So he's subverting all these 
uh, other world religions, and he's saying, we're going to do things differently. And now I'm going to multiply that in the world through you, Abraham. I'm going to use you to be the source of blessing. Going back to the promises that he'd already made, I'm going to bless the world through you, Abraham. And what's really cool is he says it's because of your trust, because of your faith. Look at this in verse 15. In verse 15, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So what do we do with this? First of all, the, the multiplication that God's talking about here is, is uncountable, right? He's, he talks about the stars of the sky, um, and if you're city people, that's meaningless, but uh, I think the sand of the seashore is a little easier to understand. I have sand here. Uh, how, many, how many people can guess how many grains of sand are in the picture? Have a guess? I had a guesser in the second service. A little boy screamed out an answer. Nobody that brave? Okay. Maybe? Okay. Uh, he said a million. He was saying between a thousand and a million. I thought that's fair. Uh, I don't really know. I wasn't able to find the answer on Google. I just found the picture. Uh, but I think the point of the illustration is that it's inestimable, right? It's not countable. It's, it's beyond our imagination. So what God is doing in this world of sickness and pain and death and selfishness and hurt is he's multiplying grace. He's multiplying love, right? He's starting this thing that's pushing back the darkness in the world, and, and you and I get to be a part of it, right? I mean, if you're like me, you watch the news or you scroll through things on your screen, and you're like, what is going on, right? I mean, you just you get overwhelmed by the evil in this world. And you recognize, okay, God's plan is to work through little grains of sand like you and me. And he's going to multiply his grace through little specks like you and me. He's going to say, through Abraham's faithfulness, that's going to lead to more faithfulness, and that's going to lead to more faithfulness, and that's going to lead to more faithfulness. So Abraham has gone through this really insane, terrible ordeal. He trusts that God will provide, and God says, because you trusted me through this ordeal, there's going to be more trust. There's going to be more faith in the world. And I want you to see the connection that that, that, that means the same thing for you. Um, that we see this throughout the scriptures, that as we trust God, God uses us to make an impact in our world. That he'll multiply his grace through your life, through your obedience, through your grace. Now we need to wrestle a little bit with this. How, how does this fit together? Because I, I made a big deal with you guys several weeks ago, if you were with us, in Genesis chapter 15, that it wasn't a because sort of covenant, Right? So here God is saying, I'm going to do these things because of how awesome you are, Abraham. That's how we could read this. But in Genesis 15, God said, I'm going to make a covenant with you, Abraham, and I'm going to knock you out and throw you to the side, and I'm going to walk through the dead animals. Speaking the covenant language of the ancient Near East, I'm going to walk through the blood of the dead animals and say, may it come upon me if I don't fulfill my side of the bargain. But even more graciously, God says, may it come upon me if you over there asleep, Abraham, don't fulfill your side of the bargain. So we see this beautiful picture of the one-sided, unconditional, gracious covenant promises of God. That God says, I'm going to make the provision. I'm going to do what it takes to bless you and bless the world. 
But then in chapter 17, we saw the covenant reinstituted, renewed with Abraham, and there were conditions, there were responses on Abraham's part. So what do we do with that, right? In the scripture, is it all God or is it what we do in response? And I would say the order is really important. The order is really important. We respond, but God starts it. It's God's grace that gets us started. It's God's grace that changes our heart. It's God's grace that makes you into someone that loves him, even though last week you hated him. God's grace in giving Jesus for us melts our heart and changes us into the kind of person that wants to love God and love other people. And we begin obeying God's law, not because we're trying to impress him and say, hey, look at me, I obeyed something. We're obeying because we actually think God's trustworthy. It doesn't make sense.